Hey, Cross of Life. Thanks for letting me once again preach to you uh, through a screen. I'm uh, on a both business trip and family trip. We did a little bit of a vacation connected to some work that I do with Conquerors Through Christ, which is our church body's ministry to help people who are struggling with pornography and those who love those who struggle with pornography. Uh, so I've been able to present at a number of our church body's schools this week, and uh, then I'm coupling it with a chance to see a little bit of family here in Wisconsin. So thank you very much to those who make worship continue to happen while I'm gone. I also want to make sure that I uh, say that I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible. I don't know if it's because I was sitting the last time that I preached like this or if there's just nobody to look at besides this this camera, um, but I think I went a little bit long last time, so I'll do my best to keep it uh, a little bit less long-winded today. We're studying the text of Acts chapter 5. We're picking up where we left off last week with Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to have a long text, so it's actually verses 12 to 42 of chapter 5 of Acts, and instead of reading the whole thing, I want to just study it as we read through it. Uh, pick up a couple just interesting tidbits as we go through the text and then talk about the big ideas of this text. So I encourage you to open a Bible. Uh, you can grab one from the back. They should have Bibles at the back. And if you don't have a Bible back there, you can pull it up on your phone, although we all know phones can be a little bit distracting. But we're going to pick it up, Acts chapter 5, um, verses 12 and going on through to verse 42 today. The Bible says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. So the apostles and the church go back to the beautiful things that God had already started to do among them before the episode with Ananias and Sapphira that we saw last week. Uh, it says here that they were meeting together in Solomon's Colonnade. Uh, you can look this up online. Solomon's Colonnade was uh, a series of columns with a roof over it that was on the east side of the temple. Uh, it was actually right by the gate where Jesus would have walked in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. And uh, it was a wide open space and it made it very easy for people to gather and to talk about God's word to each other. And it seems to be what the Christians were doing regularly, meeting together and speaking about God's word. Uh, now, a couple of interesting things about that before we move on is just that they made it a priority to meet together, right? The church has always been a church that meets together, and that is still true today, just as it was back then. Part of being a Christian is meeting together with other Christians in order to encourage one another in the faith. But what also is interesting about this is the relationship they had to the other people who were there. So the text tells us that no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. And nevertheless, many more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So you have a couple different things going on. First of all, at some level, these Christians were weird to the others around them that they believed something that was abnormal. I mean, think about this. They're in the temple complex, and they're saying, this temple is no longer necessary. Like, the, this temple has been fulfilled in the body of Jesus. Now, of course, from a religious point of view, that's, that's weird, right? But the principle is that Christians continue to believe something that is un, unexpected to the world, right? Remember, even if you've been a Christian for your whole life, you know, or if you've been a Christian for your whole life, you might not notice this, but... You believe in something absolutely crazy. You believe that that a virgin had a baby 
who was God. And that that guy grew up and died and then came back to life after doing a whole bunch of miracles. And, and you believe that that Jewish man is also your savior and your God and you worship him. That's a little bit weird, right? Admittedly, from a worldly point of view, that's a little bit weird. And, and the point of this is to say, it's okay. Lean into that. Because look what it did. The people highly regarded them. In other words, their attitude, their compassion, their patience, their love, their, their generosity, because they believed in this man who had died and come back to life, who was God, because they had that, they were, they were affecting the community around them in a notable way. Now, I know some people like to say uh, this thing, you know, if our church didn't exist, would anyone in our community notice? And I think there's something to that. Of course, we want to be a positive force in our community. But what we do at Cross of Life is rather than really try to invest in corporate service to our community, we try to equip one another to do service in our individual scenarios. So rather than say, let's all get together and do this one big thing, which everyone in our community will notice, although there's nothing wrong with that, we've chosen instead to say, how can we equip Christians in our unique contexts to love and serve one another? And so rather than ask the question, you know, if our church went away, would anyone care? Maybe we ought to ask ourselves the question, if I went away, would anyone that I know care? And I don't mean that in a, like your mom's gonna care if you die, of course. But like your neighbors, do they, they notice the service that you offer to them? Do your friends see you as a faithful friend? Our Christianity ought to make us invaluable to the people around us because of the love and compassion and generosity and patience that we show to them. And the result, of course, is that many more believed in their number. Now, notice what they didn't do. They didn't try to be relevant to the culture. Right? They were actually weird from the culture. Everyone thought, oh, I'm not really sure. And yet what still continued to happen? People came to believe. Now, that doesn't mean we pursue being weird. That's not the point. The point is to say, let's not be afraid of the weirdness that the gospel necessarily makes in us. We're going to be people who are radically, uncomfortably generous with our time and with our money. We are people who are going to be eager to forgive when the rest of the world wants to make sure that justice is served. We are going to be people who love the people who the rest of the world would not love. We are going to be people who are not ruled by the whims of culture or the edicts of some authority, but ultimately by God. And that's what the rest of this text is going to be about. The point is to say this. If we want people to come into the Christian faith, it's going to be by being distinctly Christian. If we try to sound like or look like or feel like the things that are popular in our world, we're going to be one voice among millions trying to vie for the attention of people who are already inundated by a consumerist culture. But if we uniquely stand against that and say, no, we're willing to be weird because of the one who came into this world and lived for the sake of saving it, then I believe God will give us success. Now, of course, there's these things about the, the miracles, Peter's shadow passing over people. We don't know if exactly that means that Peter was actually healing people by just his shadow passing over people, but that's at least the attitude that people had about this. Just a quick note on this, because sometimes this is confusing for people. What we know is that God gave miracles to the early apostles in order to be a, a sign of the validity of their preaching and their writing. 
So in the same way that Jesus did miracles when he walked the earth in order to prove that he was the Messiah, God also gave miracles to the apostles because the apostles were writing down the scriptures for us. And now, since we have the scriptures, uh, we no longer need miracles in order to prove anything. We have God's word contained for us in the Bible, and therefore we should not look for miraculous healings or miraculous other things from God. That doesn't mean that God can't do those things, but what we know is God has not promised those things. And so for a church to look for miracles is, frankly, to look in the wrong place. God has told us, I will show up to you in my word, which we have. My word also connected with water and with bread and wine and the sacraments. So that's where we ought to look. Now, amazing that God gave this gift, and, and it is a foretaste in a certain sense of what we will experience someday in heaven forever. But for now, let's put miracles in their proper place as something uniquely given to the apostles for the sake of validating the scripture. Now, what happens next is an episode of persecution, and that's where I want to focus much of our attention for the rest of the time. Um, let's read the text and, and find out what happens, and then we'll talk about it. It says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the per party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now, what's interesting about this episode, of course, is just that it's miraculous, but also what God is teaching us about the importance of the preaching of the gospel. Here you have the apostles being put in jail by the Sadducees and the high priest because of their jealousy. Now, that's an interesting little tidbit in and of itself. Why are they jealous? Well, because the message of the gospel does what people who are power hungry wish they could do. People who are power hungry want to control people. They want to unify people, usually for their own gains. You might think of this uh, under the guise of something like Marxism or communism. These ideas of getting everybody to move in the same direction, usually for the sake of somebody who is in power over all those people. But that's what the gospel does in a really good way. Because it doesn't put us under the authority of any one person, but simply puts us under the authority of God, not because God tells us you have to listen to me, but because God is willing to die for us in order to save us from ourselves so that we will follow him. The gospel does what all the power-hungry uh, people of the world wish they could do, but it does it not through coercion, but through sacrifice. So they're jealous, right? The church is growing. People are uniquely and, and unitedly loving and serving people, going after a common cause. And so they're jealous. So they throw the apostles in jail, but God, of course, lets them out by the power of an angel. But what's interesting about this is what they do next, right? The angel tells them, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. And that's exactly what they do. They see their ex uh, escape from prison as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And this starts to introduce one of the main themes of this section, which is that when it comes to persecution and what we're going to see, resistance to authority, the main thing that the church is always going after is the proclamation of the gospel. It is so easy for us to tie up our ideological or political desires with the scripture and what the gospel says about maybe how we meet together or what we do in community. But what we have to have as sort of our guiding principle, our North Star on this whole conversation, is that even when we resist authority, even when we are persecuted, we use those opportunities to proclaim the good news. That ought to be ultimately our goal, as it was for the apostles. I continue, verse 21. 
It says, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, we have found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the, temple of, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went to his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. So after they figure out that these guys have escaped, they bring them back in and they give them this charge that you should not teach in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, a couple of really interesting things about this. First of all, you can notice that the Sanhedrin is unwilling to say the name of Jesus, right? They call him this man or this name. <laughs> uh, now, there are some people who have sort of a magical um, thought about the name of Jesus, like just the actual syllables coming off your tongue has some magical power over the spirit realm or the demons or something like this. Um, I, I don't think that's really the point of saying something like this is notable. It's more to say people don't like to deal with the person of Jesus because the person of Jesus is, is finite in a sense. Of course, he's infinite in his divinity, but he is a real person who really lived on this real planet. When you talk about God, you can keep things generally pretty abstract. God is out there. He's invisible. He might be powerful, but we can't exactly know what he's doing all the time. It's different with Jesus. We know exactly who Jesus was, exactly what he did, and exactly how he did it. And people don't like that because it forces them into the binary of having to either say, I reject Jesus and therefore I'm going to put myself under the condemnation that he says comes from not believing in him, which is hell, or I have to repent, which is almost scarier for some people. The point of all this is to say, it is really good for us, just as Christians thinking about talking about our faith, to remember that Jesus is the key. Let's talk less about God and talk more about Jesus. Now, I understand as a theologian, those are the same thing. But for the person who does not want to believe or is struggling with faith, speaking about Jesus is far more clear and will get you to the main point that you want to get to faster. Remember, the centerpiece of our gospel is that Christ is risen. It's not that God exists or even that God loves you, but that Christ is risen. A real man lived and died and then proved that he was God by coming back to life. Another interesting thing to notice about this section in verse 28 is what we might call gaslighting today. They didn't have the term back then, but uh, really what is happening is something of gaslighting. Now, if you don't understand the concept of gaslighting, it's essentially speaking a, a false thing to a person enough times for them to start to wonder if the true thing that they believe is actually true. So the term actually comes from a movie where a husband is uh, essentially driving his wife crazy by telling her lies in order to hide up one of his crimes. And that's kind of what the, the teachers of the law here, the Sanhedrin, are doing. Uh, it says, you are, uh, your teaching is determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Like, as if they weren't already guilty of this man's blood. They had killed Jesus. They were the ones who called for his crucifixion. They were the ones who handed him over to the Romans. They were the ones who brought him to the cross. I mean, this was their doing. They were guilty of this. 
but they wanted to hide from that. They wanted to hide from their shame and their guilt. Again, the, the natural inclination of the sinful heart. And it's easy to say, oh, look at the Sanhedrin, they're so terrible, but don't we do the same thing? We very often want to hide from the evil that we have done rather than repenting of it. We want to explain it away. We, we want to say it's not that bad. We want to say it was somebody else's fault or it was the circumstances. We want to say, that's just the way I am. I can't change it. No, no, no. We need to repent. That's what God calls us to. And it's what, what believers are willing to do because of what we learned last week, that you're free to repent in the gospel. Because you can know that even though your sin is wicked and irredeemable by your works, it has been redeemed by Jesus freely and fully. And you don't have to earn it. You get it freely as a gift. Now, this leads us all into uh, arguably one of the most famous passages in the Bible over the last couple years. Uh, the phrase where Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Um, this is a phrase that has been used by numerous people to speak about the political and social issues that are going on in our society today. And I'll be honest with you, I actually recorded this sermon already once before, and I spoke about different applications of how to bring this phrase, we must obey God rather than men, into the public sphere and how we ought to relate to government and to social, social causes and, and exactly where we should go with all these things. And, and you know what? I, I decided I didn't like doing that. It's one of the great things about recording your sermon is you can preach a bad sermon and then you can get rid of it <laughs> and try again. Um, so God be praised that it just so happened this week. That's what he allowed me to do. As I was meditating on this text more and more, what I realized is that it is so easy for us to look at a phrase like we must obey God rather than men and immediately think about how are we going to relate to our government? How are we going to relate to uh, mandates that come down? How are we going to relate to other people who think differently than us about those issues? And I think those are all interesting and important conversations. And if you wanna have conversations about that with me, you absolutely should. I would love to wrestle through those things with you with scripture in mind. But what I was struck by as I meditated more on this text this week is how that's not really the main point. If you look at the text, a couple things come into view that help us to couch this statement, we must obey God rather than men. The first of which we already touched on, and it actually shows up again right here after these words. The idea is that we resist authority who contradicts the gospel for the sake of the gospel. L look what Peter does. As soon as he says, we must obey God rather than men, the very next thing he does is he preaches the gospel, right? He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus Christ from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Immediately he goes after the gospel. My sense is that for a lot of people who come on either side of to what extent we must resist authority that is anti-biblical, it's less about can we preach the gospel more or can we preach the gospel more clearly? And it's more about what do I feel comfortable with? Or what freedoms do I wanna have? And I think it's just good for all of us, myself included, to meditate on that. When we think about how we relate to our government and to our governing authorities and to really any authority who would tell us to do something that is contrary to God's word, is the ultimate goal to be faithful to the scripture? Or is it to uphold some ideal of Western democracy or Western culture, to hold up some ideal of freedom? Is it to, to try to hide behind um, some other doctrine of scripture that can make us feel good about what we actually want to do? Or is the heart behind it I really just want to reach people with the gospel. 
Now, that's not an absolute answer in a practical sense because I think there can be people on both sides of the issue who have that as their guiding, their guiding principle, their North Star, that we're trying to preach the gospel here. And I think they can come to different conclusions. But my encouragement for us is as we read this text, let's remember the context that this is all about being able to speak the gospel to other people. The second thing is the rest of the text. The rest of the text, we get this really interesting story. Um, I'm going to start reading it at verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. By the way, just side note, when you preach the gospel, what do people do? Do they all just flock to you with repentance? No, some people hate it. And we got to be real about that. But it continues, verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thoidas appeared, claiming to be somebody, somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will, be able, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged, and then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This story of Gamaliel is really interesting for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, it gives us some really interesting evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you may not see that immediately, but what Gamaliel does is he pulls back a couple of other Messiah myths of the time. He brings up Thoidas and Judas the Galilean. These were one of numerous people who claimed to be the Messiah about the same time Jesus was walking the earth. See, Messiah claims were not an uncommon thing. The problem was that these so-called Messiahs would die and then their movements would be dispersed. Uh, maybe some of you watched, I recently watched uh, the documentary that just came out on Netflix about Waco and the Branch Davidians with David Koresh. A similar thing, right? a guy who claimed to be the Messiah, who many people rallied to, and when he died, his movement was dispersed. It's not that there aren't any Branch Davidians out there, but the movement is different, right? It isn't constituted the same way that it was. But think about Jesus. Jesus was a man who claimed to be a Messiah. People rallied to him, then he died, and his movement blew up in a really good way. It became the most practiced religion on the face of the earth. Why? Why Jesus and not Thoidas or Judas or David Koresh? Because Jesus is actually God. Because when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He rose. He's alive. His movement continues because he continues. So in this, we see something really cool. That Gamaliel is actually giving evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, he's doing it in a preemptive way. He's looking forward in a sense. He doesn't know that Christianity is going to be what it turned out to be. But he's giving really good wisdom to that effect. But another thing, and maybe a more important thing for our purposes as we think about what it means to obey God rather than men, is to understand what Gamaliel is saying about God. That God will not be stopped. Did you understand Gamaliel's logic? He says, look, there have been messiahs before, and they've died, and their movements have been dispersed. And frankly, if Jesus is one of those guys, his movement will do the same thing. But if he's not, if he's not just a man, but he is also God, and he has the power of God behind him, then literally nothing you can do will stop him. Now, what do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is just some guy? 
Or do you believe that he's God? Do you believe that he's dead and gone or alive and coming back again? If you believe the latter, that Jesus is who he says he is, and yet he has received the crown of his victory over death and sin and hell, then nothing can stop him. And you need to hear that in a moment when you're persecuted or when you might feel resistance from an authority, because you'll have to navigate the questions of exactly what does it mean to resist authority in this case, to, to obey God rather than men, absolutely. But you best never leave this thought alone as you struggle through that. Christ has got this. He is in control of all of this. No authority besides God's can cause anything to ultimately happen. They may think they have control. They may actually seem to have control for a while. But unless they are from God, their plans will come to nothing. And here's where the rubber hits the road on this. As we think about how to navigate obeying God rather than men, we are definitely going to have different opinions about what that looks like. And we ought to have generous and patient conversations with each other about what that looks like. It's not good for us to just go into our own silos, believe what we want, and then come to church on Sunday and hope to get our spiritual commodities. Now, let's be a community that unites over God's word, but then let's make sure that we really do unite over God's word. Where somebody might think the way we resist government is this way, another person might think, well, we don't really need to resist in this case because of X, Y, or Z. Let neither of us forget that no matter what we do, God will control the outcome. We might resist in a certain way and be wrong. We might not resist in a certain way and be wrong. But that doesn't stop Jesus from getting his work done. So as you think back in the last couple of years, the things that people have said are government tyranny or unnecessarily, unnecessary shows of force or power, injustices, taking away of freedoms, persecutions of the church, whatever you might want to think about. Let's not forget this. Our goal is to preach the gospel. And that gospel is the gospel of a God who cannot be stopped. And so let me, be, let me give you this last application and maybe this will drive it home for us a little bit. Um, I've been recently in a couple conversations with people who are worried about situations that are not under their control. They're not under their control for a number of reasons. Some of these things are big, some are little. It doesn't much matter. But what they often come to me and say is, I just wish I could, I had a say, or I wish I had a voice, or I wish I could do something. And my answer has been, well, why don't you pray? You think some politician or some country, some person in authority can overcome God? Like, why don't you pray about it? Your God controls all things for the good of his church. His word cannot be stopped. His kingdom will not stop advancing. If you're worried about the way the world is going or your community is going or your family is going or whatever it might be in your life, pray to the one who actually can do something about it and will do what's best for it. Let me finish then with the last couple of verses of the text. Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. A beautiful picture. 
right? A, a community gathering together, not just on Sunday mornings, but in house to house, in community with each other, proclaiming to one another that Jesus is the Christ. But what is maybe most notable and surprising of this is verse 41 when it says that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You know, I don't like suffering disgrace. I don't like suffering disgrace in little ways or big ways. Uh, If I could protect my reputation from all attacks, I would absolutely do it because, well, from a sinful point of view, I'm I'm a selfish person, but uh, I'm just frankly human like any of you. And yet the apostles rejoiced at suffering disgrace for the name. Why? Because they knew that there was a name that was more important than their name. They They knew that there was a will that was more important than their will. They knew that there was a plan that was more important than their plan. And so for them, disgrace wasn't even necessarily a bad thing. It was simply what God had decided was going to be their lot in life for a little while. And they rejoiced. So many of us want to have the perfect life. We want to get married, have kids, get rich, get a house, get another house, get a nice car, be known in the community, any number of those things or or any other number of things. When we suffer, though, can we look heavenward and say, Alleluia, praise Jesus. I may not have chosen this for myself, but this is what God has given me. And God knows better, and God will accomplish as well. I pray that for you, and I pray that for our church. So why don't we go to God now? Lord Jesus, give us the patience that though we be persecuted, though we be resisted, Though we be told to do things that are contrary to your word, we never forget what our purpose is and what our promise is. Remind us that our purpose is to preach the gospel. Even when people don't want to hear it, to continue to witness to the fact that you have risen. And remember our promise, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. That the gates of Hades cannot overcome your church. That your movement that is still rippling out from your resurrection cannot be stopped nor by our sin or by anyone else's sin. Lead us to trust in you and to move forward with the confidence in all those things. Amen.